Today we're talking about setbacks and growth. And setbacks mean different things to different people. If you are a normal architect, I don't know if there's such a thing as a normal architect, but if you are a normal architect, a setback is how far the structure that you're designing is from the edge of the block of land, isn't it? Right? If you're a really fancy architect, and setback is how what you is when you make the upper stories of the building further in than the lower stories of the building, like in this uh, picture there. Eh? Setback. A setback is also the name of a card game. And it's also the name of a German rock band. But setback, in the normal way of speaking, is something that sets us back in progress. And today we're going to be looking at some setbacks that Saul faced when he began to preach the gospel. And, God, and how God continued to grow the church in spite of them. Last week we saw how Saul the persecutor was converted by the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. We saw how the one who was ravaging the church, breathing murderous threats against it, in the end became a follower of Jesus because God in his mercy and grace intervened in his life. And we saw that how having met the risen Christ, Saul the persecutor became Saul the preacher. And he started straight away. Preaching the gospel of Jesus to the Jews in Damascus, where he had actually gone with the aim of persecuting God's people. And he was preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, the promised King. And those who went to the synagogues were amazed, couldn't believe their ears. Here was the chief persecutor of Christians declaring that Jesus is the King. And not only that, He was arguing and proving it from the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. And yet when we come to this passage before us, we find that in spite of his abilities, in spite of his arguments, things weren't smooth and easy for him. There are three big setbacks he faced as he tried to fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave him on the road to Damascus. First setback... Persecution and escape. That first setback was due to the response of the Jews in Damascus. You see, you would have thought that, well, when the great persecutor of Christians comes and says, Look, I was wrong, I was wrong, listen to me, you know, change with me, then they would have listened. When he spoke about his experience, and most of all, when he proved from the scriptures in the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ, they, they should have believed, shouldn't they? But how did they respond? Well, in verse 23, they plotted to kill him. Now, when you first read verse 23, you could be excused for thinking that straight away they tried to kill him. But actually, look at it carefully. It says, when many days had passed. There's a time lapse there. In fact, many days here is not just like, you know, two weeks or three months or something like that. Many days is many days. Okay, it's a long time. Paul was in Damascus for a long time. Uh, in fact, he was in Damascus and then he went to Arabia. He tells us that in, in Galatians 1, then he went back to Damascus. And after he came back, he was in Damascus for about three years. Still proclaiming in the synagogues the kingship of Christ. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. 
And the response of the Jews were actually not altogether negative. Through Paul's ministry there, he had a number of people who were following him as he followed Christ. We know this because in verse 25, it says that his disciples helped him. We'll come to verse 25 a bit later. But there are his disciples. So you see, Paul's kind of settled in Damascus. And he has disciples. But then, verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. At first he was tolerated, but eventually he was persecuted. It's marked out for extermination. Now, sometimes it's a little bit like that for us, isn't it? Not that we're marked out for extermination. Hope not. But people sometimes tolerate faithful gospel proclamation for a while, and then for a while more, and then for a while more, and then they don't tolerate it anymore. And they try and stop it. My friends, God is in control. It's his timing that counts. God has plans for Saul, and he's not going to let him die yet. Yes, eventually he will die for the sake of Jesus. But not yet. And so, verse 24, their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, Saul might have been a bit reluctant to take this action. We don't know. Luke hints at it by saying it's the disciples who took him. So they are the ones who take the initiative. It's their plan. Enemies are watching the city by night, watching the gates. And those days there are many houses that are built into the city walls. And uh, they took him to one of those houses, out the window, in a basket, <laughs> lower down. Obviously because he's no good at abseiling. They lowered him down. They smuggled him away. And Luke and the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write seems to approve of this. There's nothing here that makes it look like Saul's done anything wrong. See, brothers and sisters, it is never, never, never right to deny Christ because of persecution. Never. It is always better to die than to deny Christ or to worship other gods. But sometimes it's okay to run away. Saul was brave and courageous for the gospel. He did not go up to the people who, who sought his life and said, Come on, kill me. See if I can. I'm going to heaven, you know. He doesn't seek martyrdom. If he were caught, he would have remained faithful. If he were called upon to give up his life, he would do so. Saul was no coward. Later on, he suffered the most horrendous things in order to bring the gospel to others. But the smart thing to do at that point was not to be martyred, but rather to run away and to escape and to live to preach another day and bring the gospel to many, many more people. We talked a little bit earlier about the correspondence course that we run from Moore College. And one of the subjects we've been running uh, this term is early church history. And one of the memorable stories we read together is about one of the church fathers called Oregon. As a young man, he really wanted to be martyred. 
And when persecution came, he, I'm going to go and identify myself to the authorities, you know, as a Christian, and I hope they're going to kill me for Christ, and, you know, I'll be a martyr. And the thing that stopped him was his dear mother hid his clothes. <laughs> so he was naked, he couldn't go out. <laughs> and because of that, he lived and became a great defender of the truth. See, there was a time in history when being a martyr was a really desirable thing. And when you think about it, it is, still is, isn't it? Jesus says, rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted because of me. Being martyred, being killed for the name of Jesus, it's a good thing. But it may not be the best thing. Sometimes it's appropriate to stand up and face persecution like Stephen. We saw that in Acts 7. Sometimes the best thing to do is run away from persecution. Saul does that here, on the insistence of his disciples. Depends on the time. Depends on the circumstances. It all depends. But whatever we do, we are to do it for the glory of God. We're not to seek martyrdom for our own glory and fame. Not to run away because of fear. We are to fear God and no one else. But like Saul, we are to be wise. We seek to spend our lives for the glory of God and the good of many, that they may be saved. Now that's true of martyrdom, and you can just bring that down, translate that to whatever level of persecution that you're facing. Be wise. There are times to stand up. There are times to run away. So the first setback for Saul is that he has to run away from Damascus, leave his ministry there because of the persecution. Well, the next time we meet Saul, it's back at Jerusalem. Here he was, converted persecutor, going back to the place where it all started. And there he meets a second setback. Because the disciples didn't trust him. Chapter 9, verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. How would you feel if you were Paul? Well, there you go. Your old friends, they hate you now. Because you've deserted them and you're following Jesus. And the people who are meant to be in your new family, well, they don't accept you either. They're suspicious of you, think you're a spy. You know, that kind of thing still happens today, doesn't it? Now, in Pakistan, a big problem. People who have been Christians for generations in Pakistan refuse to trust people who have been converted from Islam because they're afraid of spies. So there's division in the Pakistani church. And friends, Pakistanis are not the only Christians who are scared of converts who might be spies. Apply to your own situation. We heard about uh, faithful North Korean churches a few weeks ago from David Kim. Remember, if the authorities found them out, a whole lot were automatically killed. They're very careful, aren't they, before accepting anyone into the church. You can understand that. Well, the church in Jerusalem, they were the same. Very reluctant, very careful, 
Who's this guy? Do we trust him? I don't think so. Especially when this guy is Saul the persecutor. Is this a trick? Well, Barnabas says today, and acted as Saul's introducer or sponsor. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas comes along and says, Okay, look, I can vouch for this guy. Isn't that good? It's a good example, isn't he, of someone who's willing to stick his neck out for his brother. And the eventual result was more gospel ministry. Now, Barnabas doesn't simply go and you know, vouch for him for no good reason. Right? He's, he's not just simply vouching for someone. He's got good reason to have confidence in him. And so he shares his reasons with the apostles. He says, look, there's two things. First of all, for Saul's conversion story. And tells them how on the road to Damascus, Saul saw the Lord Jesus and heard his voice and was changed. And he tells them about that. And the second thing he tells them is his brave gospel work. How he proclaimed the gospel boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. He had nailed his colors to the mask. He has publicly declared his allegiance to Christ. He's been, he's been courageously speaking about Christ in Damascus at the risk to his own safety. If he's willing to risk his own safety for the gospel, then, hey, can't you accept him as a brother? And so, with the introduction of Barnabas, the testimony of his conversion, the evidence of his life in Damascus, Saul was accepted then as part of the church. And he was able to carry on his ministry, verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So that setback was temporary. Saul went on to boldly proclaim the gospel. But the preaching that resulted from that, well, that kind of preaching always stirs up opposition. And so Saul will soon face a third setback, another round of persecution, and then escape. This time, not in Damascus, but in Jerusalem. It started when, verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now the Hellenists were the Jews who spoke Greek and were Greek in their thinking. They were the ones who had collaborated with Saul a few years back to kill Stephen. They were the ones who were responsible for the death of Stephen. Stephen tried to argue with them and they got angry and, 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 and killed him and, and Saul was in on it. And now Saul is going back and preaching to those people and arguing with them, like Stephen did. And their response at the end of verse 29, but they were seeking to kill him. Funny, isn't it, how the response of the Jews in Damascus, the same as the response of these Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem, eventually. Although these Hellenistic Jews got there much quicker, I think. Did those who hate the gospel try to shoot the messenger? Just like Saul did before. But this messenger's time was not up. God preserved him. And once again, he escapes. And once again, the instrument is Saul's fellow's believers. Verse 30. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
They sent him far, far away. You can see it on the map. See, he goes to Damascus, and it comes down to Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, they send him up to Caesarea to take a ship, go all the way up to Tarsus, which is the capital of Cilicia, where Saul actually originally came from. So you see, they sent him home. So, here's Saul, chosen by God, to be a great apostle, and he starts preaching, it's not smooth and easy. First thing he faces, setback, followed by setback, followed by setback. Three in a row. And after he shipped off to Tarsus, we hear nothing of him for about seven to ten years. Was he burnt out after all those setbacks? Was God simply preparing him for his future ministry at the time? Or was he like Moses, you know, in the wilderness, so to speak, until the time was right for him to come out? We don't really know what God's intention was there. If we were the ones calling the shot, we would probably told him, okay, come quickly, straight back on the preaching circuit, you've got to go to the Gentiles, you know, you've only got how many years, go to the Gentiles and see as many as you can convert and all that, and God's plan was different. Back. Wait. And when God's time was right, God would release him again. Saul, he was an ideal pioneer. Brave and bold, willing to argue and reason for the gospel. And when the time came for him to be unleashed, he would be, he would have a tremendous impact on bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. But for now, he's back up in Tarsus. Well, we've seen three setbacks. Is there any good news in this passage? Well, yes, there is. As Saul leaves, so does the persecution. Verse 31. And so the church throughout Judea and Samaria had peace and was being built up. It's interesting, isn't it? How peace comes when Saul goes. Not only that Saul wasn't persecuting them like he was before, but he wasn't stirring up persecution against them either. The Hellenistic Jews who were after Saul's blood stopped pursuing him and, and the church had a time of peace. And at that time, verse 31 says, it was being built up. It was growing. So Paul saw, Paul saw, it's only after he goes that the church is a time of peace. Now, some people have taken this to mean that Saul was too aggressive here. Uh, and so he had to be sent in exile back to Tarsus learn a few lessons before God could really use him. But that's not the impression we get from Acts. Luke and the Holy Spirit who inspired him is never critical of what Saul does. In fact, that's not the impression we get when Saul tells us later on in Acts from his angle. Nothing suggests there's anything wrong with Saul's approach. Of course he stirred up trouble, but then that's normal, isn't it, for someone who's preaching the gospel, as we've seen in the last few weeks. On the other hand, there's nothing that seems to be wrong with the gentle approach either that the church at, 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 in those places were having, that they had, must have adopted because persecution ceased when Saul left. Neither denied the gospel. And it's obvious the gospel was being preached in both cases. 
Saul was obviously preaching the gospel boldly and arguing the, the facts with the people. But Luke could not have said in verse 31 the church was being built up if the gospel wasn't being preached. The gospel was still going out. People were still coming to faith. People were growing to maturity in Christ. And in fact, it seems, in this case at least, there was more growth in this way than in Saul's more confrontational way. And yet, both were fruitful. And in fact, Saul would take this approach and go all over the Mediterranean later on in a very fruitful way, bringing the gospel to lots of places. No criticism of Saul. Both fruitful, but the style, the approach, the manner of operations was different. And God used both for his purposes. In fact, different ones of us have different approaches to proclaiming the gospel. Some of us are more confrontational, some of us are more gentle. Some of us are more intellectual, some of us are more personal. And that's okay. We don't all have to be the same in the way we do things. God will use us in different ways. But what we do have to be is faithful. We have to be faithfully proclaiming the truth, not another gospel, but the truth. That Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again as king. And we need to keep that faithfully in the center of our lives and our witness. Now, if being faithful in that way gets us into trouble, then so be it. No choice. But within the framework of faithfulness, there are different approaches. And we need to acknowledge that. When Saul left, the church had a time of peace and it grew. In fact, it did so quite a lot. The end of verse 31 says, it multiplied. It multiplied. What do you think the factors were in the growth? What's driving, fueling the multiplication? And is that something that we can learn from today in, in seeking to multiply churches? Well, before we look at the answer, um, that question in our passage, let me, let me sound a note of warning. When we talk about church growth, we need to be careful that we don't fall in the trap of taking whatever the latest shortcut is there on the market. You know what the shortcuts? As a pastor, I know that every few years, a new product or idea or phenomena comes along that's guaranteed to make your church grow if you only follow it. Get ensnared in fads and whims instead of keeping our center firmly on the gospel. And we can do things to bring more people to church, but it's not real growth because they're not being transformed by the gospel. I want that kind of growth. What's God's formula for building his church? Well, notice what caused the church in Judea, Samaria, and Galilee to grow at the end of verse 31. It says, Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That's the direct explanation for its growth. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What do they mean? Well, the fear of the Lord 
has to do with the fact that God is the creator and therefore the judge. God is the creator and therefore the judge. Uh, we saw the fear of the Lord coming on the church in Jerusalem a few chapters earlier, isn't it? When, and, and when God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead, when they sinned and lied to the Holy Spirit in church. Struck them dead and great fear came upon the, came upon the, uh, uh, the people. Okay. Yep, keep going. Fear the Lord. Yep. Keep going. Yeah, that's the one. Okay. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 12 verse 5 that we should not fear uh, those who can only kill, but then they can do anything else. This is the person that fear is the one who has killed and then can throw you into hell. You fear him. And the early church, it says, walked in the fear of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, I wonder sometimes if we have forgotten something of this fear. We forget that God is an awesome God. That he is great and mighty, clothed in honor and majesty. We forget that he is completely pure and holy and, and does not tolerate sin. We forget that he is the judge. And those who come under his judgment are, are lost forever. And sometimes we fear man, not just because we are cowards, but because we do not realize how fearsome God is. We take him for granted. We fear God when we realize both how great and mighty and exacting he is, and also how terribly we have offended him by our sin. The sin that we laugh off, or we rationalize, or ignore. And that sin is deeply and terribly offensive to the holy God who made us. And this holy God, unless He is appeased, will destroy us. And He has every right to. He made us and will judge us. And if we get on the wrong side of Him, there is, there is no one higher to whom we can appeal. He's it. For right and wrong, they come from Him. It's not independent of Him. Morality springs from Him. Something is right because it's consistent with Him and His character and, and how we are to relate to Him. Something is wrong when it's not. It's all personal. And we, the stupid and wicked characters we are, have rebelled against Him. We face His wrath. His personal wrath. He is to be feared. Friends, we will not grasp the good news of the gospel unless we start with the fear of the Lord. And neither will our friends. Sometimes in contemporary evangelistic programs, they shy to, they shy away from presenting God as judge. Try to make God as attractive as possible to non-Christian friends and don't tell reality like it is. They miss out bits of God's holiness and justice and miss out bits that deal with sin and and so people don't understand or appreciate the cross. But brothers and sisters, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the church needs today to recapture something of the fear of the Lord. 
Not in a way that diminishes his love, but in a way that acknowledges his holiness. We need to walk in the fear of God. And we need to be prepared to preach it as well. But, the story does not end there. The early church walked in the fear of the Lord, and verse 31 again, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now the word translated comfort there, also means exhortation or encouragement. In Acts 13.15, Paul and Barnabas are invited to give a message of exhortation or comfort or encouragement for the people when they come to the synagogue. In Acts 15.31, they get a letter uh, from um, the Jerusalem council uh, to say the Gentiles are not required to, to be circumcised or anything like that, and they are encouraged or comforted by that message. Wouldn't you be too? Back near the beginning of Luke's Gospel, an old man named Simeon met the baby Jesus at the temple. He was a man who had been waiting for God's Old Testament promises to be fulfilled. Remember, this is back at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, which is part one of which Acts is part two, setting up the scenes. And Luke says in chapter 2, verse 25, that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It's our word again. Comfort. And what Luke is referring to in Luke 2.25 is actually something back in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1 when Isaiah the prophet is writing 600 years before Christ and he's writing at a time before the exile but he's writing to people after the exile because the exile is when God kicked his people out of the land. When they refused to obey him, God gave them this land and said, look, if you obey me and you keep my commandments, you stay there. If you don't obey me, you, keep, you, you disobey my commandments, I'm going to kick you out. And he did. And he's promising the time that will come when God will bring his people back. And Isaiah is writing to give people hope beyond the judgment. And he's announcing a day that the exile will be over when God would come to save his people. And he says in Isaiah 41 and 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And when Jesus came as a little baby, the old man Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel, looked at him and said, I'm ready to die. Because my eyes have seen your salvation. Because in Jesus Christ, God was coming to comfort his people. He was coming to say, your sin has been paid for. To proclaim, he, he had bought their pardon. And so the comfort he would bring would be the comfort of forgiveness, of the exile being completed on the cross, of God's people restored. But the comfort, the consolation that he brings is not just to Israel, which has been kicked out of the land, because Israel's sin and exile being kicked out of the land is, is actually a picture of a bigger problem. The bigger problem is humanity being kicked out of the garden for sinning against God in the garden. The place where we had intimacy with God. Back the Garden of Eden, where we were God's people in God's place under, under God's blessing and rule. And, and we sinned and we were kicked out. And the death and resurrection of Jesus not only deals with the problem of Israel being kicked out, Israel's exile, but our exile from the Garden of whole humanity. 
And Jesus died not just to take Israel's sin, but your sins and my sins to bear our punishment under the wrath of God to bring us back to relationship with God. Jesus himself was sacrificed so that we could be forgiven. So that our sin, like Israel's, can be paid for at the cross. And when we come to understand and believe that, when we come to know it for ourselves, then we experience the comfort of sins forgiven. And that comfort is something that can only be given by the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit is the one who assures us of God's love by pointing us to the cross, where that love is perfectly displayed. Because it's at the death of Jesus where we see the full measure of God's love for us. It's at the cross where we see and experience his comfort. The Bible says that God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And just a couple of verses before that it says, and that love, that God's love, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. See, the Spirit points to Jesus. The Spirit points to the cross. And the Spirit says, hey, Jesus died for you. Be comforted that he took your sins, that he took your place, that God averted his own wrath, that God took his own punishment, that God paid for the sins that rightly insulted his holiness and majesty. The great immortal God whom we offended has absorbed the offense himself in the person of his Son. And his Spirit now gives us the comfort of forgiveness and acceptance. And so though we started with the fear of the Lord, we are no longer terrified by him. For we know that the one we fear is also our Father who loves us, who gave his son to die for us. We know the one who could have thrown us into hell went through hell for us so that we never need to. And we know it's this fearsome God who brings these comforting words about Jesus and makes them real to us by his Spirit, enabling us to believe this gospel word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. But it's perfected with the comfort of the Spirit. But friends, do you see that the comfort of the Spirit is no comfort at all unless we are distressed in the first place? If we think God is just this happy-go-lucky guy who really doesn't care about our sin, you know, just winks at it, has a tira-apa attitude, you know, boys be boys, doesn't matter we will not seek the comfort of the Spirit. Because we don't think we need the cross. But if we know the fear of the Lord, if we are rightly distressed by our own sinfulness in light of God's holiness and judgment, then the comfort of the Spirit is a real comfort. And so the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit go hand in hand. You must have them together. And verse 31 of Acts chapter 9 tells us the church multiplied as they walked in the fear of the Lord 
and the comfort of the Spirit. See, brothers and sisters, if we truly fear God, if we are truly comforted by the Spirit, then that's not just a one-off thing. We need to keep on walking in it. We need to know what it means to keep on being in awe of the Almighty God, standing in awe of Him, and at the same time being comforted by the Spirit who shows us His love for us on the cross. And if we walk, if we live, if we go on in awareness of both those things, then we can't help but speak of them to others. And as we present the gospel to others, we mustn't be shy of proclaiming either God's justice and our sin, so that people come to know the fear of God. And we mustn't be shy to speak of the comfort and assurance the Holy Spirit gives through the word of God, as he points us to the cross and shows us the forgiveness and the acceptance we have in Jesus. And as we speak of these things, as we walk in them, both the fear of God and the comfort of the Spirit, then God's church will indeed grow and be built up in a gospel way. In conclusion, today we've seen setbacks, especially for Saul, the zealous young convert. And yet in spite of those setbacks, God would grow him and mold him into Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. So, just because we face setbacks doesn't mean that God isn't going to use us. We will face setbacks from time to time. And it doesn't just mean just because we have to run away from some situation doesn't mean that we're cowards. And we've seen in recent weeks how God used persecution to spread the gospel. And today we see that he used peace to build the church. And friends, God can use both persecution and peace to build his church and accomplish his purposes. God uses either. So we mustn't fear persecution and we mustn't despise peace. What we have to do is fear God and live in the comfort of the Spirit. And we're to preach both those things to others. At the moment, I think that we are living in a time of relative peace, aren't we? At least us. We are. There are others out there who aren't, but we are. We may not always have the freedom to meet in this way, but just like the early church in this passage, we have the freedom at the moment. And the question is, how are we using it? What are we doing with our time of peace? Are we making full use of it to build God's church, walking in the fear of God and the comfort of the Spirit? We work hard to communicate the gospel to others so that it goes out and God's people multiply and increase so that the church is strong when persecution time arrives? Are we making the best of the peace that we have? Or are we frittering it away in complacency and self-indulgence? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving your Son to die for us. 
We know that you are holy and mighty God to be feared. That you are justly angered at sin and rebellion. And yet in your love and your mercy you've given Jesus to take our place in death on the cross. And you've given us the comfort of your spirit who enables us to trust in that Jesus. Our Father, we pray that you enable us to walk both in that fear, that awe of you, and in the comfort of knowing that we are accepted by you completely in, in, in Jesus. Help us not to get discouraged by setbacks, but to press on knowing that you use all these things for your plans and your purposes. Help us to have the confidence to keep on proclaiming your gospel in the way that you've given us to, in spite of whatever happens. Father, we thank you for the time of peace that we are experiencing at the moment. We pray that you enable us to make full use of that. Keep on proclaiming how great and awesome and mighty you are. Keep on proclaiming how awfully sinful we are and how we've provoked your judgment. But keep on proclaiming how you have shown your grace to us in Jesus Christ and poured your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we have been forgiven and can call you our Father and can bring this message of grace and salvation unto others.